Good evening. It is actually very good to be back here. Um, I, uh, amongst other things, I do speak uh, a lot at the various Newman Guide Colleges, and I think that you're, you know the Catholic educational world well, so you know what the Newman Guide Colleges are. Of course, Christendom College is one of those, but um, with only one other college, which will remain nameless for diplomatic reasons, but basically Christendom College and the other college uh, of all the Newman Guy colleges, in other words, of all the colleges in the world effectively, uh, feel like home to me. And I don't get here as often as I would like. Um, that's a sin of omission, I hope that Dr. O'Donnell will, will rectify. Um, but I first came here, I think, in, in the spring of 2002, when I was 12. <laughs> and uh, I've been here, this is probably my sixth or seventh visit, but every time I come, it's like coming home. So it's a joy to be here, so thank you for the invitation. And also, because it's been a long day for people and you've had lots of talks and classes and, and other things, I, I'm going to try to keep my talk down to just 30 minutes. Um, but I would, uh, we'll have some Q&A afterwards. So I obviously can only say so much in 30 minutes. So please be thinking of questions and I'll, I'll, we'll have a little Q&A session before we, we wrap up. So the topic is the problem of pain and great literature. And I want to say before I get into the, the, uh, the nitty-gritty of that talk, that why great literature is important. And it's the humanities, the important the humanities, why the, the humanities are so important is because they teach us about humanity. And we now have an educational system that is all oriented towards that which is inhuman and inhumane. And if you have an education where the humanities are um, exorcised, you will have an inhumane, inhuman culture within a generation. And I want to give you just one example of this in literature here, that great literature shows us who we are. Hamlet tells us as much. J.R.R. Tolkien tells us as much in his lecture on fairy stories. He says that, that, that fairy stories hold up a mirror to man. They show us ourselves. Great literature shows us who we are. So if we want to understand ourselves, then we need to understand literature. And I want to say one thing here as well is that how does God reveal himself to us? He doesn't actually generally, I mean, obviously he does it in manifold ways. But the most obvious way is not through abstract concepts. He doesn't show, her, show us that he's omniscient or omnipresent or omnipotent. Philosophers might work that out. The way that God reveals himself to us is through story. First of all, through salvation history. And history, we should understand as his story. But also, and most importantly, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God shows us himself by showing us himself in the story of humanity and telling us the life story of himself. And within that story, the other way he tells us the most important lessons is through telling us stories. So apart from the most important lessons he teaches us through his life, death, resurrection, is the stories he tells us, such as the parables. And the prodigal son 
never existed. He is a figment of our Lord's imagination. He's a work of fiction. He never existed, nor did his father, nor did his brother, and nor, most shocking of all, did the pigs. <laughs> and yet, for 2,000 years, whenever, from the time that Christ told it in person to the, to the time that we've all read it or heard it since then, we all see ourselves in the story, even though the prodigal son never existed. We see ourselves in the story as the prodigal son as the envious brother, and please God as the forgiving father. That's the power of story, and it's sanctified by Christ himself and by God himself by the fact that that's the way God shows himself to us. So bear that in mind. So now talk about how the great literature shows us big issues and big problems such as the problem of pain. And I'm going to begin with paganism. Of course. <laughs> and I'm actually going to begin by being much more sympathetic towards the pagans than one or two other comments that I've heard here this weekend. I like controversy. <laughs> so for instance, the theology that we see in Homer, now I'm not talking about the wider Greek polytheism. I'm talking about Homer, specifically Homer. I'm talking about great literature. How does the Iliad begin? Right, the first great work of Western civilization. Well, it begins actually with two words, sing muse. In other words, it begins with a prayer. He's asking for the gift of God or the gods to speak as in grace through him so he can tell the story well. So in the first two words, is an act of piety. His work is something which is meant to tell the truth as the gods understand it, as an act of obedience to them. And then beyond that, he says, sing muse, of the anger of Achilles and its destructiveness. All right, a connection immediately. Anger and destruction. And as we read that work, we know that Achilles' anger is actually a product of his pride. You know, the, the, the anger is just the product of the pride. Pride precedes the fall. That's the story. Profoundly orthodox. But it goes deeper than that. Not seeing muse of Achilles and its destructiveness, but... Sing Muse and its destructiveness and the will of Zeus, which is accomplished. So in other words, sing grace in me of the sin of this big heroic man and how his sin is destructive of himself, his enemies, and his friends. A lose, lose, lose situation. And that all of this is the will of God being accomplished. So the, the Iliad is a theological work. And as for Homer's polytheism, yes, he believed in many gods, or at least he introduced many gods into his work. 
But Homer, uh, but Homer shows us in the Iliad that Zeus is more powerful than all the other gods put together. There's even a metaphor. They've all the other gods in a tug of war with Zeus. Zeus is by himself, all the other gods the other side. He tells them, you would lose. And none of them contradict him. Now, that sort of polytheism is basically one god who's more powerful than all the rest put together, which really relegates the other gods to what we might call supernatural beings, which we might actually call angels of both types, um, angels and demons. And in the 23rd book of the Iliad, we have this metaphor, which we normally miss, which actually, when I first read it, I thought, this is irrelevant, surely. There's a, the Olympic Games going on, right? And there's chariot races and wrestling. And, you know, okay, come on. Yes, get on with the story. <laughs> All right? I mean, do we need this? But by this time, we realize Homer is a great storyteller, a consummate artist. If he's spending the best part of the penultimate book on a digression, it's probably for a purpose. And that chariot race is basically that if there's a cheat in the, uh, in the chariot race and the mare is stolen, it's a female horse. You can do the rest of the metaphorical stuff because I've only got half an hour. <laughs> but magnanimity saves the day. If people had forgiven and been open, you wouldn't have had to have the war. So... Uh, it's mentioned in the talk this afternoon by Graham Greene about the humanities, right? About we need some understanding of mercy. Well, long, several hundred years before um, Aeschylus comes along, Homer's basically saying the same thing. And then in the Odyssey, then we get the even deeper question. Okay, so it's not that controversial to say that if you behave badly, you know, bad actions like bad ideas have bad consequences, right? That's true, but it's not necessarily very profound, and the fact that God teaches us lessons, the will of Zeus being accomplished, is also not necessarily profound, but in the Odyssey he goes deeper. Because at, right at the beginning of the Odyssey, Zeus says that the mortals blame us for their suffering, even though it's their own recklessness that brings suffering to them, beyond that which is given. And the sting is in the tail there. Because, first of all, yes, they blame us. In other words, when things go bad, they blame us. But really, it's their own sin and their own recklessness that caused the problem. The whole of the story of the Odyssey basically shows that. It's really the journey of Odysseus' growth in virtue. So that he becomes worthy of his noble wife, who's much better than he is. But beyond that which is given... In other words, that even if men were not reckless, even if they were not suffering the consequences of their own bad behavior, there would still be suffering given. And the word given, of course, implies gift. That suffering is necessary. And we'll go deeper into that as, as we go on. Antigone, so now we're going to Sophocles, 
my judgment for what that's worth is the greatest dramatist other than the Shakespeare. Antigone has, is absolutely timeless. I'm sure that many of you have read it. I'm not going to ask for shows of hands. But really, the issue is that the secular power, King Crayon, says that you cannot give your brother a religious burial. Because I, as the secular power, supersede any religious liberty. And Antigone says, I'm sorry. You might be the king. You have no right to take away my religious liberty. And I will defend to my death my brother's right for a religious burial. And this is written two and a half thousand years ago. We had a wonderful talk yesterday from Father about communism. We see what's happening in the modern day United States. Two and a half thousand years. This is the timelessness of the lessons that literature can teach us. And what this, this, this lesson is that Antigone chooses suffering. She chooses pain. She chooses death. And one of the reasons, by the way, apart from just the fact that this is right, is that she has to think about eternity. That she's going to die. And by the way, one thing you do see in the Odyssey and in the Aeneid and in Sophocles is an understanding of the afterlife. Not the same as Christians understand it, but they did not believe that life ended at death. So, for instance, in Oedipus, Oedipus is a character, and we can forget sort of modern Sigmund Freud and Freudian perversions of uh, perversions in the literal sense of the word, of the meaning of, of the work. Oedipus is the original King Lear, because to use the phrase Lear, King Lear says, I'm a man more sinned against than sinning. Because Oedipus is ignorant of the things he does. In other words, he, can you be culpable of a sin you don't know anything about? So yes, he does kill his father, but it's in self-defense, and he doesn't know that he's his father. So can he be guilty of killing his father if he doesn't know that he's his father? Then he marries his mother, but he doesn't know that she's his mother. And when he discovers the hor horrific news, he plucks out his eyes as an act of like renting the garments we mentioned earlier in the book of Job. Now this is just, this is so abominable, I have to, you know, repent. But then the, 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 probably the play of the three, which is taught and read and performed least, Oedipus at Colonus. And this is what, the, what Sophocles writes when he's an old man. Bear that in mind, by the way. The three works really represent Sophocles' own growth in wisdom. That third play is about Oedipus as an old man who's come to understand that he is a ma man the more sinned against than sinning. He's actually, in many ways, the victim of circumstances beyond his control, like Job. He doesn't curse God, on the contrary. He blesses the afflictions that have been placed upon him through no fault of his own, because through it he has gained wisdom of what it is to be human and the, re the relationship between being human and the relationship with the gods. 
And at the end of that play, Oedipus, it actually predates our Blessed Mother's assumption. Oedipus is assumed into heaven. He sort of disappears behind a bush, and then he just, he's just gone. It's the award of the gods for someone who embraces suffering. And this is the big lesson. We're going to get into the Christian era now. But the big lesson that literature and life teaches is that it's not really about suffering at all in the sense that suffering is absolutely unavoidable. You can't avoid suffering. The whole of humanity is on Golgotha. Not in the sense, or is on the se in the sense of putting Christ there. We're all, yes, we're all there as the one nailing him to the cross. That's true. But we're also all there either side of him on the two crosses. Because all of us are either the good thief or the bad thief. Because we are all going to be crucified in this life. We are all going to suffer. What do we do with that suffering when it happens? Do we blame everybody else except us when we suffer? Do we blame God? Do we blame our neighbor? Or do we do what the good thief does and says, I'm a miserable sinner? And Alexander Solzhenitsyn, by the way, said, he, when he was in prison, there was this Jewish convert to Christianity saw him he was, and said that I know mystically that I am suffering for my sins. Even if a lot of things happening to me, such as being in the gulag, is not my fault. And if I'm innocent of those charges, nonetheless I'm guilty of the sins. And when Solzhenitsyn wakes up in the morning, that man is murdered during the night. These were his last words. And Solzhenitsyn says, those words have to actually be there. And he says, I know that for me and I think for everybody, we're honest with ourselves. We deserve the suffering we get, like the good thief. Even if the particular suffering, like cancer or sickness, is not anything directly related to things that we've done. If we genuinely examine our individual consciences and what we've done in our lives, we're not innocent victims. Again, the discussion of the book of Job this morning. No, Job is a good man. He's not a perfect man. He's not the Blessed Virgin Mary. He's not Jesus Christ. So again, we see this in Dante because first of all my big complaint I've written about this a lot and I'm going to vent again now because venting is fun it won't get me to heaven but it's fun <laughs> one of my big complaints and I, I say I've written about this is the fact that we only read the inferno and actually I'm, I'm, I'm teaching a class at the moment homeschool connections class high school age kids and we got to Dante and I said just give me a Y or N for yes or no have you read any any part of the Dante's Divine Comedy and about I don't know, two thirds 
said yes. I said, okay, now, just write the, and why if you read something other than the Inferno. Straight ends. And these are Catholic kids. Now, you know, the Divine Comedy is one work, not three works. To read the Inferno is like reading The Fellowship of the Ring. Reading the first part of The Lord of the Rings and thinking you've read the whole book. Sorry, you've read the first third of the story. You need to carry on. Because the Divine Comedy at the deepest is an ascent in two senses of the word, both senses of the word, ascent, A-S-S-E-N-T, and A-S-C-E-N-T. It's a saying yes to God, and it's because you're saying yes to God, it's an ascent to God. That's what the divine comedy is. So only to read the part of it where he's descending is to completely miss the point. Now, why is this? Well, because at, after the Reformation, the only part of the Atlantic divine comedy that was conducive to Protestants was the Inferno. Right? They don't believe in purgatory. They don't believe in the communion of the saints. They're not going to read those parts of the book. It's ironic, of course, that the Protestants are only at home in hell, but I'm, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> shouldn't have said that, but did. That won't get me to heaven either. <laughs> and again, in a post-Christian period, the same thing. When people stop believing in God altogether, they can still read the Inferno, because everybody can understand the consequences of evil. No theft, adultery, lust. You can see the negative consequences. But when you talk about repentance, penance, the sinner who's in love with God and is willing to embrace and accept the suffering necessary to make amends for their sins, completely alien to the modern world. And of course, the hierarchy and communion of the saints, completely alien to the modern world. So I can understand why only the inferno is uh, read today. We are living in hell. Of course, the modern world understands hell. But is there any excuse for Catholics to only be reading the inferno? That's my venting. But again, one of the key things about the Divine Comedy is the bad thief is in the Inferno and the good thief is in Purgatory. And it's a lesson about what we do with suffering. Do we embrace and accept it? And insofar as we're responsible for it, do we embrace and accept the suffering that's the consequence of it? Or do we hate God and hate our neighbor? And maybe hate ourselves, hate everything, because of the experience of suffering. And let me say one thing here as well, because the other thing that, the, that literature teaches us about ourselves is who we are. There are really three definitions of who we are that, that you might say are encompassed by literature. It's not homo sapiens, by the way, that label for us, homo sapiens. I mean, if you know any Latin. But homo sapiens means wise man. If you're looking for a defining characteristic of humanity throughout history, right, wisdom's not the first word that comes to your mind. And it's a very new term, but it's only 200 years old. It's for the earliest known use of the, the homo sapiens as a label for us is the early 19th century. 
So older, literature teaches us an older understanding of who we are. First of all, and, and, and perhaps most importantly, the Greek word anthropos. We get words like anthropology. And in Plato's understanding of the etymology, it means the uplooker or he who looks up. Right? Because the way I sometimes phrase this is the animal grazes, but man gazes. The animal is a slave to instinct. We transcend instinct to wonder about things. As Oscar Wilde said, we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at the stars. So this understanding of Anthropos actually is, is, if you like, is harmonized and confirmed by Thomas Aquinas in the Summa. When he, he talks about, if you like, the, the path of perception. And he says that all perception of the truth begins with virtue. Specifically with the virtue of humility. Which, I, again, to be controversial, I would, humility is the greatest of the virtues, and I'm not disagreeing with St. Paul. Because without humility, you cannot love. Right? The, the first and the worst of sins is pride. The antidote to pride is humility. Humility, says St. Thomas, the fruit of humility is gratitude. And the fruit of gratitude is that your eyes are open to wonder. And the fruit of wonder is contemplation. And the fruit of contemplation is dilatatio, dilation, the opening of the mind and the soul into the fullness of reality. Anthropos, the uplooker. Now, what's the, the absence of that? Let's do it the other way around. Pride. If you have pride, you have no gratitude. If you have no gratitude, your eyes are closed to wonder. If your eyes are closed to wonder, there is no contemplation. And if there's no contemplation, there's no dilation, there's no dilatatio, there's no opening. All that's happening is you close yourself up. There's a wonderful verb, a neologism, we should all be using. We can golemize ourselves. <laughs> If we will not be anthropos, we will be golems. There's no central path. And that's why that great philosopher, Jane Austen, <laughs> puts pride and prejudice together. They do go hand in hand. So anthropos. The other understanding of who we are is homo viator, man on a journey. Traveling man, voyaging man, pilgrimaging man. Man in a story. If all of our lives are a journey, all of our lives are a story. In the story of our lives, we will face dragons. And if we don't defeat the dragons, which can only be done through the grace of God, we will be devoured by them. And to be devoured by the dragon is actually to become a dragon. Because the other thing we have no choice about, by the way, in life, we, we are either slayers of dragons or we are dragons. No central path. Homo viator and anthropos. That's who we are. Or rather, 
That's who we should be. Because the other thing we can be is homo superbus. Proud man. Man who makes himself God. Man who refuses to be anthropos. Because he's looking inside himself instead of up at the stars and the God who made the stars. The man who refuses the sacrifices that the journey of life demands and spends a life of self-gratification. That struggle, because that struggle, as Solzhenitsyn said, is fought in the heart of each and every man, all of us. That's where the drama takes place. Between Homo superbus, on the one hand, and Homo viator, viator and, and Anthropos on the other. That's what the drama that plays itself out in great literature. So in the seven minutes left, we'll do seven centuries. <laughs> Shakespeare. I could say much more about Shakespeare. I'm going to take just one play. King Lear, arguably his greatest, arguably. There are parallels, of course, between King Lear and Antigone. Because it's really the same dilemma. The, the king, the secular power, says, you owe all of your allegiance and loyalty to me. If you tell me, the secular power, that you love me above all else, I will make you very rich. And of the three daughters of King Lear, two tell the king what he wants to hear. And of course, they're lying. But he's, here's what he wants to hear. He makes them very powerful. The third daughter, the one who really loves him, because she loves him, refuses to play the game. She says, I will love and be silent. She does it for his sake. And her reward for that is exile. And the key thing about that play is the two different types of foolishness. So the weird thing about King Lear, you have the fool. The fool has lots of the best lines. But the fool's lines really are, Lear, you're stupid. Right? You gave all your power away. What a moron you are. That's, the, king, that's the, the fool's wisdom. And of course, this irritates the king, even if it's true. Right? But then the king meets this miserable beggar who's naked, spouting apparent nonsense. And of course, it's Edgar, the, 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 the virtuous Edgar, who's been framed, and he's now poor Tom. He's in disguise as a madman. And it's the madness of St. Francis. St. Francis strips naked in front of him. So look, if you want, you say that I owe my allegiance to, to you, my father, because of all these clothes I'm wearing, take them. Walks off into the woods naked. But poor Tom's wisdom is Christian wisdom. And what's very interesting about King Lear is the fool disappears. Without a buying or leave. We don't even know what happens to him. Now, if you or I wrote a play where the person who had most of the best lines disappeared halfway through without an explanation, right, everyone would say, 
sorry, you obviously need to take some rudimentary lessons in playwriting. But we can't really seriously think that Shakespeare made that sort of fundamental error. The fool disappeared because he was actually exorcised. There's a new sort of foolishness, a Christian foolishness. The worldliness is gone. King Lear has turned his back on that. It means nothing to him anymore. She's now embracing poverty. He strips naked. And how does this wisdom play itself out? And this is one of the most exciting things that, that I've come across in my life. I'm excited by silly things. And I was in Rome, and I was by myself, sitting in an Italian restaurant, and I just had this wonderful Italian meal, and I had a bottle of red wine beside me, half of which was imbibed, <laughs> but the other half wasn't. And I was by myself, and I'd finished my meal, but I thought, I still have half a bottle of red wine to finish here. And I had the eclectic poems of St. Robert Southall with me. And I can't have no time to talk about this now, but there's all sorts of evidence that I've talked about in, in some of my books that Shakespeare knew St. Robert Southall well, certainly knew his works well. Now, I know King Lear quite well. And I'm reading this book of poems by St. Robert Southall. And there's a poem by St. Robert Southall. By the way, very briefly, if you don't know St. Robert Southall, English martyr, Jesuit in Elizabethan England, came back, great heroism in the late 1580s, knowing that when he was arrested, he would be tortured and then put to very slow and horrific death, the details of which I won't tell you because you've just eaten. So he, he, he actually managed to elude arrest for several years in the heart of the beast in London. Eventually arrested in 1592, is tortured horribly and heroically because he gives no information away about other martyrs. And is eventually killed, martyred in 1595. Shakespeare almost definitely knew him. Great poet as well, though his poetry is very well known. Shakespeare alludes to it in several of his plays, Hamlet and uh, Merchant of Venice and Romeo and Juliet. Anyway, so I'm opening this, reading through it, and then there's this poem called Decease Release by St. Robert Southall. It's written in the first person in the voice of Mary, Queen of Scots, on the night before her execution. And the whole imagery of the poem is that she's a martyr for the faith. She dies a Catholic, and that her death will be like incense going to heaven. Because in the phrase of the poem, I will be as God's spice. That in being crushed, the aroma will be pleasing to God. A fit sacrifice. I read this, at God's spice. Because in one of my favorite speeches from King Lear, right at the end of the play, when Lear is embracing his own martyrdom, says to Cordelia, come, let's away to prison where we can laugh at those gilded butterflies, laugh at the courtiers dressed like butterflies in gold. And we can be as God's spies. Now, we know Shakespeare loves playing on words. The Jesuits were God's spies. They could not go around as priests. They went around as gardeners or teachers. 
So God's spies are God's spies. Shakespeare on the problem of pain. St. Robert Southall on the problem of pain. I'm going to tell you about what I would have spoken about if this was earlier in the day and I would have speak, could have speak for 45 minutes to an hour. Because I would, I would take questions. So again, I'll take questions on these particular works of literature, if you like. Um, but I was going to spend some time on Hopkins's, General Manny Hopkins, the great Jesuit poet from the 19th century, wrote a poem called The Wreck of the Deutschland. And this poem is about uh, a natural disaster. A ship is wrecked off the coast of England on its way to the United States, and one quarter of the people on the ship are killed, including five Franciscan sisters. And Hopkins meditates upon the problem of pain, the problem of suffering, in one of the most profound ways ever. I, I want to write a whole book on that one poem, by the way. I've taught it many times. Brideshead Revisited, where the metaphor for grace, I could say much more about Brideshead, deserves a whole course, let alone talk. But again, Brideshead Revisited, the two metaphors for grace in it are a twitch upon the thread, which he gets from a Father Brown story, so even more Boris from Chesterton. Twitch upon the thread, in other words, that you're pulled back like a fish. So there's a suffering. You're, you're going away doing your own thing, but all the time God has you on the line. And when he wants you, he's going to twitch upon a thread. In other words, he's going to yank you back. So you won't be doing what you want. You'll be, you'll be fished in. You'll be saved, actually, against your will. And the other one, which is even more powerful, very beautiful, the way that, that the war talks about this. He mentioned two different significant places towards the end of the novel. Grace as an avalanche. And the, the protagonist, Charles, is this man. He's got his, in his little hunter's hut, his nice little cozy hobbit hole around him, his life fully arranged. Everything's just what he wants. But then the sun, grace, melts the snow at the top of the slope, causes a, an avalanche, de completely destroys the hunter's hut. There's nothing left. That's grace. Charles has to have his whole life destroyed so that he can begin again where he needs to be. It's about the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, but I'm not going to. Now I'm going to finish with Oscar Wilde. Because in the Battle of the Reading Jail, Oscar Wilde wrote when he got out of prison, he says, but God's eternal laws are kind and break the heart of stone. For how else but through a broken heart may Lord Christ enter in. Thank you. <laughs>